TL Talk Radio, Season 4, Episode 8. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 8 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hetton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funy-Hetton. Good afternoon, Randy. Hello, Lynn. <laughs> so, Randy, really excited today. We're speaking with Tom Markham. You may recall we spoke with Tom in last ep- season's Episode 15 about his recent book, Redefining Smart, Awakening Students' Power to Reimagine Their World. Today we're going to talk about project-based learning, something that Tom knows quite a bit about. So Tom's a psychologist, author, speaker, educator, thought leader, and internationally recognized consultant to schools and districts. He focuses on project-based inquiry, 21st century skills, innovation, school redesign, and student empowerment. So a lot of the things that we're talking about in in our district right now. As founder and CEO of PBL Global, he's worked with hundreds of schools and districts and conducted workshops for thousands of teachers across five continents, providing proven methods and resources for designing high-quality, challenging, and authentic projects. In addition to numerous articles, Tom's publications include Project-Based Learning Design and Coaching Guide, Expert Tools for Innovation and Inquiry for K-12 Educators. So welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Randy, and thank you, Lynn, for that nice introduction. I'm very happy to be here again. And we're excited to talk about project-based learning. And before we started the recording, we were chatting with Tom about this very topic, and uh, we know there are going to be some interesting tidbits today for our listeners to take away about project-based learning. So to start off our conversation, project-based learning is quite the buzzword these days in education. And... There's probably a lot of good, under solid understanding, but there's probably some misunderstandings too. So let's frame this a little bit. Share with us what are some of the distinctions about project-based learning and what makes it different from just the traditional notion of projects? Yeah, part of the problem we face here, uh, Randy, and the reason I think it's a buzzword uh, is that it's hard to distinguish projects from PBL sometimes. And I think different practitioners might describe it differently, but I think in three terms. Uh, First of all, projects tend to be thematic. PBL is designed around a problem or a challenge or a driving question. I think PBL is suffering a bit at the moment because it's uh, gotten away from its roots in problem-based learning, but I always consider PBL to be organized around what I call a wicked problem, a problem with constraints that's important, that has a challenge to it, that has a meaningful purpose and a reason to solve. So to me, that's where great PBL starts. Uh, In traditional projects, you often have exhibitions or you have uh, students doing public work. That's part of PBL as well. But I consider great PBL uh, notches up that experience to what I call a masterful level. So it isn't just kids showing stuff to adults, it's actually them delivering solutions and showing a a deeper intellectual grasp of the problem that they've been working on during the project. So I consider that public deliverable to be a key element of really great PBL. It's the capstone and it needs to be done really well. Uh, The third piece that for me distinguishes PBL is moving from the idea of cooperative learning or group work where kids are just kind of sitting around a table talking about something 
to really industry level teamwork and the notion of teaming and taking that PBO learning process as an opportunity to help kids master what is clearly the core work skill these days. And that is the ability to work with each other, offer feedback, listen closely, be attentive, show humility when somebody is talking and to practice all those deep aspects or behavioral aspects that make a good team member, which of course is what companies are looking for these days and are in fact spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year to try to train them and complaining that we don't do enough in K to 12. So uh, PBL has an opportunity to use that teaching students design processes, fail persistence, design, solve, all those elements of the design process, all those can go into teamwork and PBL. So the heart of PBL is really doing, uh, and this conversation I believe is beginning to merge, is really design thinking and PBL problem solving is becoming one and the same. So thinking about, um, I'm, I'm processing, we're, we're both taking notes feverishly here because you've really summed up three big ideas about um, project-based learning. The idea of the wicked problem, the idea of the public deliverable, and the idea of industry-level teamwork. Um, and you even give us some examples because one of my first questions was, what does that really look like, industry-level teamwork? And give us some examples. Um, you know, listening with humility and accepting feedback and providing feedback. And uh, well, the first thing it looks like is really deep and well-written performance rubrics for collaboration and teamwork. Mm -hmm. Having teachers take those rubrics seriously, putting them in the front end of the project, uh, training students on those rubrics, and writing out those rubrics with bullets that might include demonstrates humility, uh, demonstrates good listening. Uh, is able to be quiet when another teammate is speaking. Mm -hmm. I want to put those bullets. We can write uh, those bullets in ways that are good descriptors of what teamwork looks like. Uh, for example, on the collaboration rubrics that I use with PBL, one of the uh, elements or rows is empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, how you can't really do good teamwork without empathy, meaning you have to work with people, as I say, you don't really like. Well, get over it. That's what has to happen in the world. And you learn to do that. And I think when you're 14, 15 or eight or nine or whatever, you, you can start to learn these skills and behaviors and understand uh, how to do this well. And as I often say to my audiences when I'm working with teachers, if your students these days don't exit the K-12 system without having had deep experience of working a team, we are not, we are failing our students. That is simply as important as the SATs. So in order to do that and um, to engage students in conversations about empathy and some of the other skills that you've identified and behaviors that you want to see students um, practice, learn first and practice and get feedback on, um, we need a, a classroom culture that's PBL friendly. So what should our teachers be thinking about when creating that positive learner friendly culture in their classrooms? Well, a lot of teachers know how to do this well. A lot of teachers are very friendly and do establish what I consider to be a culture of care, which is essential to good PBL. A PBL doesn't work without having a strong and positive relationship with students. Uh, as I say to audiences, if you're working with teams of students, that means you might be coaching a team, but not have your eyes on the other teams in the room. And they better be doing work and not taking that as an excuse to go off task. So that requires a lot of deep 
conversation and trust, or as I call it, a culture of care. Uh, there's also some other things that I think come into that culture of care. It's not just patting kids on the back. It's also showing intellectual leadership, which is another form of care. And for example, to go back to the teamwork, really, first of all, why are we learning teamwork in this project? What's the, what's the essential reason? What's the why behind it? Well, the why is because it's probably going to help you get a better job and be a better employee. Uh, that's one reason. Uh, it also is the way the world works. And the world works with collaborative mechanisms these days. And so I am teaching you how to do this. That is also a form of care. So I don't mean it's just, again, patting kids on the back and saying how wonderful they are. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really intellectual leadership. Uh, it's also being able to uh, blend standards-based learning with interest-based learning, which is a key element in PBL design. So PBL is not just designed to cover standards. We know how to do that through other forms of instruction. It's not just designed to be discovery learning and do interest-based alone. A good intellectual leader in the classroom, a good PBL leader, is balancing out what students need to know versus what they would like to know and finding that right blend and then being able to sell that to students in a way that makes sense to students. And that's a, that's, that's a tricky culture to develop, but that's what a great PBL teacher has to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll just add before we go on, I have a, I also think that, you know, this is where the personal personalization element comes in is really being able to look ahead of time with your students and knowing them well enough so as they move through the project-based learning experience, you are in fact speaking to their individual needs and you're personalizing to the extent you can. Because as we know, every single person on this planet is slightly different and everybody has slightly different needs. And uh, there are ways that PBL can personalize the experience for students in a way that makes students feel satisfied at the end of the project and wanting to come back for more. So we've started our conversation with sort of the 35,000 foot level of distinguishing what project-based learning is. Talked a little bit about creating that culture in which project-based learning can thrive. So now let's take it a little bit deeper down to the ground level and actually designing a project from the, the teacher's perspective. And we know there's no formula necessarily. There's no, you know, necessarily a, um, a bulleted list, let's all call it that, a bulleted list that teachers can follow. But I think you've defined some steps that or stages that one goes through in terms of designing that. So could you walk us through um, what that looks like in terms of designing a powerful project? Yeah, I think in terms of what I call design principles, I try to stay away from the word or the term steps because mm -hmm. it's not a linear process. It's a holistic process. So the first thing I try to do is work with teachers on what I call thinking like a designer. You are designing a learning experience and moving out of a step-by-step -step linear lesson plan uh, delivery style or planning style where you're going, what do we do on Monday? We follow up that on Tuesday. I'm not saying you won't need that with PBL. It's, it's handy at a certain stage of the plan, but you start off thinking like a designer and thinking, for example, well, we're going to do a three week project. What's going to happen in those three weeks? How do students enter this learning experience and how are they going to look when they exit? So that's sort of the 30,000 foot level you start with. Then I think in terms of design principles, the first go-to is what's the why behind the project? What's the challenge? 
And the challenge is usually wrapped up in uh, thinking about what's meaningful to students, what's authentic, what's purposeful. And I know those, those, those terms are a bit fuzzy sometimes, but you are trying to move past, we're doing this project for a reason other than for the test or to cover the standards. We're looking for something deeper. That needs then to be turned into a very effective driving question, which captures a problem. The criteria here is that when you get to that stage in project design and you believe you have a driving question, the most helpful thing you can do is share it with another teacher and say, this is my driving question. And the most helpful thing that the other teacher can do for you is say, what is the problem to be solved? And you will find that most driving questions are such that the teacher cannot answer that question. So if you can't answer that question, that means you have to go back to the drawing board and rethink the project. So that's sort of the, the beginning stages of the design. You have to have a problem. I mean, project-based learning is rooted in problem-based learning, which was clearly problem-oriented. We have gotten away from that a little bit. And many of our projects have questions that are, uh, how do you do this? Well, how do you do this? You read a book or you go online. I mean, it doesn't take you deep enough into driving questions. and. Uh, that's a key. Uh, a second is then, uh, once you have the driving question in mind, a real planning tip that will speed up your planning process is to go immediately to the end of the project. What will students produce? What will they show me? What work will they produce for an audience? As soon as you move from the driving question to the end product, the end product then reflects back on the driving question, and usually you have to work back and forth between those two, but you're trying to put the bookends on a project. What's the question or problem, the challenge? What are the kids at the end going to do to show me that they've addressed that challenge and gone through a process of deep thinking, research, gathering evidence, and judgment and critical awareness in order to be able to offer solutions? If you get those two bookends put in place, you're actually, it's relatively downhill from there. Then you think, what do I need to teach? What do I need to put in? What's the schedule? When are students gonna do the work in teams? When am I gonna do the work from the front of the room? This is a tricky area because many PBL teachers feel that they can't ever do front of the room direct instruction. Mm -hmm. It works. There's, there's, there's time and place for it. You can do 20 minute just in time. You can plan in traditional lessons. It doesn't hurt. The kids will survive. Uh, <laughs> plenty of opportunity to also reflect, do, analyze, and plan, and design. So you're then you're in a backwards planning process once you get there. Then you lay out your calendar, and then you begin to make adjustments. Uh, as I call, you, you, you need to prune, because almost always projects are too big uh, for the time allotted, and you have to prune and, and figure out what's essential and what isn't. Because one of the elements, as any PBO teacher will tell you that is challenging is it takes a lot of time to put kids in teams, train them on a rubric, have them go through the actual learning process of discussion. We all know from our own experience, this is not a straight line experience. There's a lot of recursive discussion and there's dead ends and there's, oh gosh, we just spent a, we just spent a 45 minute class period and we got nowhere. <laughs> That's what happens in life. So PBL teachers need to be relaxed into that and give them as much time as we can, but there are always trade-offs between uh, uh, time and unit and coverage issues. I know that, so teachers need to be smart about this. 
And then once they get to that point, uh, then it's a matter of making sure they have the right performance rubrics in place uh, so that students know exactly what they're expected to produce. That includes your skill-based performance rubrics. Are they gonna collaborate? How much of the grade is gonna be designed for collaboration? Is it gonna be 10% of the project grade, 20% of the project grade, 50%? Uh, I urge teachers actually to use rubrics as a flexible device to sort of train students uh, to, to steer them in the right direction. And Lynn, to come back to your early, our earlier discussion, if you want students to learn to listen and you don't feel like they're doing very good listening, in your first project, you make listening part of your teamwork rubric and you just give that a few more points and make it more important. Uh, so use that as a, as a training and performance tool. Once you get those in place, uh, you're pretty much too good to go on a project plan. I do notice that many schools doing project-based learning do not have teachers commit these to actual planning forms. They're sort of in the heads of teachers, but for schools or districts that really are serious about PBL, they need a standardized reporting or planning mechanism. So those forms can, after the project is rolled out, can be posted up for other teachers to use the following years. Every PBL school or district should have a repository of projects of their own so that teachers can take advantage of the work that's been done. So certainly the, the role of the teacher has shifted significantly and you gave us some examples of how that might look different, more front end planning, um, asking our teachers to be really thoughtful and document what the big idea for the plan is and what the process for the project is going to look like. Um, you talked about the shift in instruction in terms of providing some direct instruction, whether it's a just-in-time lesson. And also the importance of assessment, identifying the rubrics, um, giving very careful thought to your formative assessment data to redesign or reiterate the rubrics um, and use those rubrics to provide thoughtful feedback for students. Well, I should first say that one of my major complaints is that we are asking teachers to be guide on the side with absolutely zero direction as, and sort of deep dive into what that looks like in my, I can't, I don't see much of it around. Yes, you're supposed to be a guide on the side. So in terms of PBL, really is, this goes beyond PBL in a way. And I think it goes to what the skill sets we're expecting of 21st century teachers, which will become more and more apparent. I break it down into three. Uh, different roles for a teacher. The first is the mentor role. The mentor role to me is the social emotional learning piece, attitude, and becoming a, establishing a mentor relationship with students. Now, if you look at all the work that's been done on youth development, adolescent psychology and so forth, much of which work does not make its way into the educational discussion, unfortunately. The mentor role allows you to establish a connection with students in which you can do two things. One is you can identify what's meaningful to them. And so you can build on that, you build a relationship. The second thing that happens is that you can actually tell students they're on the wrong track and not doing a good job. And you can do it in a way that they will respect you. And so the mentor <laughs> is key. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one is the skills piece, coaching. So to coach someone in teamwork means you have to know what a good team looks like. You have to know what good team behavior looks like you have to become a coach and this is where the sports analogy works just fine you are looking to uh, give feedback on behavior you're looking to uh, coach skills for collaboration and i referred earlier to masterful public delivery of on public deliverables 
you should be able to coach students on what really good presentation looks like. You need a little bit of Toastmaster skill there in order to give feedback on that. So the coach role. And then finally, there's the teacher role, uh, which is the planner, the leader, the intellectual deliverer. Uh, Randy, I think you and I may have corresponded on Facebook about this, but I was, I'm was i highly uh, skeptical and actually slightly uh, annoyed by the tech leaders who say everything is going to be done through the computer and why are we going to need a teacher? We are more than ever desperately in need of great teachers who can become intellectual leaders for young people. It just means the role of the teacher looks a little bit different. They're not delivering information. They are doing much more, but we desperately need those folks. So the teacher needs to know when to deliver information, uh, when to highlight certain aspects of their discipline that are important. They need to be able to make distinctions about which concepts are required to do well in life and which can be discarded, which standards are meaningless and which need to be covered in detail. And so those three roles I see as important. And though, and I think you'd agree, those are important for any kind of classroom, but in PBL, they become acute in terms of the need. So looking at it from the teacher perspective uh, and in terms of being the designer and what sort of um, roles they play in the classroom, let's move to uh, leaders because there will undoubtedly be some leaders who are listening to this podcast and might be inspired by the buzzword that's out there and might have hopefully um, had their thinking pushed a little bit uh, from the earlier parts of the podcast. So what suggestions would you give to leaders from a leadership perspective who want to uh, bring PBL more onto the center of their work? I think I would first suggest, Randy, that we don't use the term buzzword. Mm Mm-hmm. Because buzzword implies uh, it's just kind of the flavor of the day. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I don't see a PBL that way. I see PBL as a philosophy of teaching and learning that is going to embrace what we do all the way to the 22nd century. It's just a flexible tool. It is a method. It is a method for designing a three-week project, as I just went through. Yes. But it's also a way of organizing how we think about teaching and learning. So I don't consider it a buzzword so much as a philosophical shift in the way we're trying to do business in the world of education. From my standpoint, uh, the shift, uh, you can obviously characterize it in many ways, but from my experience, my perspective, we simply need a deeper learning experience for students. If we're going to get into these social emotional aspects of behavior, that's deep. Those are iceberg kinds of qualities that we can't easily get at and we can't easily, if at all, test for. We are into process-oriented learning where we are setting up the right conditions for learning to occur and for those deep shifts in perspective and awareness to occur in students. And we're trying to get very good at that. And PBL is an intentional process, I think, that does that very well. I don't, maybe I'm biased because I've been in the PBO world for a long time, but I have not seen any other way that we do this. It's a project-based experience matches a project-based world. And it gives us an opportunity to solve problems, draw upon all these internal resources, not just cognitive resources, as you know from our prior conversation, uh, Randy and Lynn, uh, I'm not a believer that everything happens in education from the neck up. 
I believe in a holistic uh, version of learning in which the heart and brain are partners in this. And so we're trying to uh, offer learning experiences to young people that uh, affect both heart and mind, if you will. And PBL does that very well. It sets up a, a coherent problem to be solved. It really drives students to grapple with that problem in a meaningful and deep way. Uh, it, it, that invokes all the resources you can bring to solve that problem, whether it's uh, your, uh, your empathy, your curiosity, or your cognitive executive abilities. It asks for all of that. Then it asks you to show what you've done by exhibiting skills. And then it asks you to offer some sort of solution to an open-ended problem that shows you have thought through something in an as an intelligent fashion as you can. That to me matches the way of the world. So that is a system for matching the way of the world. And PBL can even go further than that. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about how we're not really using the elements of PBL to uh, uh, get as much out of it as we can because we still, too many teachers still view this as a way, it, well, let me just back up a minute. There's an industrial hangover, I call it. PBL is still seen as a way to convey information, not to develop people. And we are moving into, we need people development. That's what the world is calling for. We are a personalized people developing society now. And so PBL does a very good job of that, I believe. When done well, I should say, when done well. Mm -hmm. So what I take from that is as leaders, we have to really be in tune with what we believe about learning, powerful learning experiences, and that we want to move towards that deeper learning that you described, and that we want to use PBL as an intentional process by which we can bring that about. Yes, and um, I would just, you know, emphasize PBL not as a thing, but as a philosophical approach and helping teachers move into that mindset mm -hmm. of student agency, problems to be solved, deep collaboration, public products, grappling, using all of your internal resources to make the best judgments you can about the world, mm -hmm. the problems in the world. Or And by problems, I don't mean climate change necessarily it can be smaller these these can be as i often say within a mile of your school there's a hundred projects waiting to be done mm -hmm. there are uh there's just all sorts of things we're trying to solve these days or address mm -hmm. so i heard you mention um multiple times caring and how students feel about the learning and we know that you have a particular passion for social emotional learning. Can you talk to us a little bit about that explicit connection or intersection that you see between PBL and SEL? Well, I will admit first, I dislike the term social emotional learning uh, because it is another industrial hangover. We mm -hmm. have academic learning, somehow that occurs in the brain. We have social emotional learning, somehow that occurs somewhere. We don't know exactly where. A lot of like the people put it in the brain. I think that's the wrong place. I put it in the heart brain working together, as you know from my some of my other comments before. So I, I, I feel that what we're searching for as we move forward uh, into 2050 or 2020 or whenever it is, that we're looking for a more coherent, integrated view of what is learning and what is learning, period. And 
PBL, I believe, is very helpful to that because actually PBL and social-emotional learning are built in together. So I've been doing more work on this recently. And for example, when you deal with challenge or driving question, you are invoking curiosity. When you deal with a driving question, you are invoking problem solving and critical thinking. When you invoke teamwork, you're invoking empathy, as I mentioned earlier. When you do a public deliverable, you're not just delivering information, you are dealing with self-confidence and uh, self-awareness. Really, that's why people do Toastmasters, to develop their self-confidence. And so you can, if you are thoughtful about this as we move ahead on PBL, we can actually find an integrated social-emotional learning, project-based learning match. And if we do PBL well, we'll be doing everything at the same time. We won't need to distinguish these and have one or the other. I, I just don't believe uh, that's going to ultimately be necessary. We're going to come to a more, uh, more depth and understanding of what learning really is. And if I was to take this all the way to its conclusion for me, uh, you know, I come out of psychology. One of the big five personality traits is openness to experience. That's what sort of they shows up all the time. I believe that what we're trying to do is actually through PBL, create openness to experience in our students. The ultimate underlying goal is to have students exit a project more open to the world than they were before they entered. So one of my big takeaways today is uh, the importance of vocabulary mm-hmm. that we use. And we've been actually thinking about that in terms of some of the beliefs about learning and like personalized learning and all those other uh, phrases that are out there. And so intentionality of of the vocabulary and the wording that we use, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. If I could add something here, uh, when you mentioned vocabulary, I I don't want to leave the impression with listeners that PBL is all about, as I said, pats on the back, openness to experience. There's also a scholarly aspect to PBL that needs to be included. So teachers need to be aware. For example, what vocabulary do students need? What literacy do I need to build into projects? So that tends to get left out sometimes, but I very much urge teachers to build that in. We want literacy is pretty much proving itself to be a have to have. And if you look at industry, they're complaining that people aren't writing well enough. Well, you can build writing into your projects, literacy, vocabulary building. So in some ways, even though I'm on the opposite uh, side of the spectrum from the core knowledge people, I greatly sort of appreciate that perspective mm-hmm. and think about how do we do both so we do build core knowledge into projects as well. So it's not an A or a B at either or. Mm-hmm. It's an A and, and both. You know, we're moving into a both and world and we're just sort of fumbling our way forward on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this has been a really uh, interesting conversation. Definitely leaving learning something. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few things. <laughs> so what's next for Tom in terms of PBL? What you working on? Well, my, uh, my big thing is what I call democratizing PBL. So um, I have put all my work online. I have two great online courses. Uh, you can learn PBL methods. You can also learn what it means to build your PBL skill set, what kind of teacher you need to be to make those methods work. And my goal is to spread this through PBO Global everywhere I can, because I'm a believer that this is what's coming. Uh, Most uh, organizations uh, do PBO by bringing in a trainer or consultant like myself, 
and speaking to 30 people or sending a team of five people to a conference and then you end up with two percent of the district trained so that's not enough so i'm trying to get this out in a way that's affordable uh, to, to all teachers everywhere and to let them take these high quality pbl methods and then figure out where we go from education here i think we have to go back to a a social conversation among teachers to move us forward on all these very difficult issues. I think, I believe in the creative capacity of teachers to figure this out, but I want them to figure it out from my perspective through the lens of good project-based learning. You're a very wise man, Tom. Yeah, making lots <laughs> thanks, of connections. Thanks for sharing. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. So thank you for joining us, Tom. If you, as our listeners, want to learn more about Tom's work, you can visit some of the links in the show notes, um, project-based learning design coaching guide. Uh, you can follow Tom on Twitter. You can check out PBL Global and um, also links to the book. And um, looking forward to learning more about those resources Tom is making available online. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. So this episode's, what would you identify as a strength of your learning culture supportive of project-based learning? And what is your next step to move you closer to powerful PBL opportunities in your school or district? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or access any of the resources that were mentioned by Tom, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode eight. That's all for today. We'll be back soon with another episode featuring conversations with other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. 